Therapist about the physical therapy profession and practice. I am Johan De La Paz, your host. Uh, let's go on with the show. So I'm delighted to introduce my guest for today's podcast. She is an associate clinical professor at Drexel University College of Nursing and Health Professions. She has published and presented on different topics related to her areas of ex- expertise in chronic pain, underserved populations, clinical reasoning, and interprofessional care. She's a board-certified clinical specialist in orthopedic physical therapy, a fellow of Physical Therapy Academy of the National Academies of Practice, and a spokesperson of the APTA Choose PT campaign. So it's my pleasure to introduce my guest for today, Sarah Wenger, uh, Doctor of Physical Therapy. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah. So I was uh, telling you earlier how, how we were connected through APTA, and it's really nice for them to be able to do that so they not only um help us or like what do you call this uh lobby for our profession and and uh help us with our professional practice but they also connect physical therapists around the country and and like to collaborate and just connect so that it's really nice uh i, I just sent a, a a message to them asking for resources or connected me with person about trauma-informed care because this is something new to me so and here we are and and thank you for agreeing to uh, this conversation no problem yeah Hadia's connected us is wonderful she's been a resource for me too all right nice so before we go on to our topic which is uh, trauma-informed care could you give us a little background how you uh, started uh, as a physical therapist, and, and what led you to your current um, areas of interest? Yes, so I started PT the way a lot of people did. I blew my ACL in college playing soccer, and um, I knew I wanted to do something in healthcare. Uh-huh. I went through PT myself. I just decided it was a good fit. And then when I told my mother, and she was like, oh, it's perfect, then of course I knew it was the right thing. <laughs> Um, and then I ended up, I kind of fell into chronic pain and underserved populations. I wouldn't say I, I didn't exactly do it intentionally. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think my mindset has always been, I'm not gonna try to like fight everyone to be the best at the thing that everybody's doing. I'm going to kind of go and do the thing that's being neglected. That's kind of always what, where I've been interested. So I have in following the path of like doing what isn't getting done, that kind of landed me in chronic pain and underserved populations. And that eventually led to um, trauma-informed care. Mm-hmm. All right. So when you say, uh, when you say underserved population, uh, what type of populations are, are, are this? 
Uh, pretty wide. So per, pretty much my whole career, I've worked with like people who are uninsured, mm-hmm. have Medicaid, are uninsured, and I've also worked with a good amount of undocumented mm-hmm. um, patients who aren't going to be insured anytime. Mm-hmm. So don't really have a lot of options for um, getting care, and particularly getting outpatient care. Oh, you know, wow. urgent mm-hmm. care. So. Um, I have worked with, I've worked with people from all over the world, um, and and a lot of people who are, are on Medicaid or uninsured. I mean, that's really what I mean by that. Um, mm-hmm. So right. large Black populations, large Latin Latinx populations, and then just a smattering of everything of mm-hmm. over the place. Right. Gotcha. Right. So it's amazing. Um, so uh, let's dive into our topic, which is trauma-informed care. Um, so in, in your in your own words, how, how do you teach, or what is trauma-informed care, and, and how do you, like, uh, teach this to your, like, students to make them more understand what trauma-informed care is? Well, okay, so pra- trauma-informed care is, it is sort of designed around the idea that some people have trauma in their backgrounds, but I think informed care is something that's useful for everyone. So I don't think it's something you just use right. for people who have trauma. So I kind of look at it as the same idea as universal precautions. Like you don't know if somebody has an infection or not. So you just wash your hands and wear gloves and, you know, have good habits. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true for trauma. Like you don't know who has trauma and as PTs, you know, we're not mental health providers. As PTs, it's frankly none of our business if somebody has not had trauma. So I think we need to approach people with sort of acknowledging that possibility and conduct ourselves in a way that is less likely to re-traumatize someone and is, you know, accommodating of people who have, like people who've experienced trauma should enter the healthcare system and just struggle and have a hard time. And I think that's often what happens. Um, So I think we as individuals can conduct ourselves in a trauma-informed way. I think our facilities can be more comfortable environments. And I definitely think our healthcare system could be more trauma-informed. So, I mean, I think it could be, you know, micro, macro, and everywhere in between. Gotcha, gotcha. So, uh, during my orientation in my facility, that's when they introduced trauma-informed care. Um, uh, the the speaker mentioned that the concept came from a study from an obesity study, um, and and they found out that some of the participants had trauma in their history. That's why they had this relationship with food as a coping mechanism. So. Um, What's the philosophy behind uh, trauma-informed care, and, and why is it this important in uh, in really dealing with with patients? Yeah, so you're talking about the ACEs study, the trauma and the uh, adverse childhood experience. Study. I think that's it. Yeah. Yep. It's a uh, so that study basically Vince Felitti was a researcher who was looking at weight loss, and mm-hmm. he had. He had people who had lost weight but had dropped out of the program, and he basically pursued them with some interviews to find out why all of his good data was disappearing. You know, mm-hmm. like because they were lose, they were successful. Mm-hmm. And 
in those interviews, a history of sexual abuse turned up multiple times as he was doing that interview. And instead of doing what, in my opinion, or what seems to me most researchers do in that scenario, which is say, people with a history of sex, sexual abuse are not successful in this program and they make it an exclusion criteria. Um, what he did is he, you know, kind of teamed up with the T- CDC and was like, well, you know, what's up with this? Why is this having such, you know, why is something that happened in childhood having such a big impact on health and health decisions and health management now? Mm-hmm. Um, that's how they ended up doing the, the ACEs study. And they basically designed a kind of simple questionnaire about childhood trauma and were able to determine that, you know, the high, that the ACE score has a dose dependent relationship to a whole lot of adult health disorders, including chronic pain, which is my area. So, um, but heart disease, multiple, multiple psychological, social, and physical health problems. Um, So that, so in realizing how much trauma affects health, that's what sort of made people realize like, gosh, we have to do something about addressing trauma or the sequelae of trauma. Like you, obviously you can't go back in time and fix people's experiences, Um, but how we're managing people who have those experiences, how we're interacting with them and how we are conceptualizing their health and their risk, you know, that is a big risk factor for poor health. So are we nipping it in the bud? Are we doing anything for prevention relative to trauma since we know it's a risk factor? I mean, the answer generally speaking in our healthcare system is no, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what should we be doing in terms of prevention? What should be what should we be doing in terms of making a more accommodating healthcare system for people who've had trauma? What should we be doing just to make the healthcare system work better for really everyone's health? Because I think like trauma-informed care to me is everybody wins. Mm-hmm. So trauma-informed care is like making sure that people are comfortable, making sure that people feel heard, making sure that people are not alienated, scared, or um, just uncomfortable in the healthcare environment. And to me, like, if you do a better job at that, everybody wins, regardless of whether or not they have trauma in their background or not. Right, right. So that's amazing. So when when we talk about trauma, is it just sexual trauma, physical trauma, emotional trauma, or all of, of the above, all of the above. And I think since that, since the original ACEs study, there's been a lot of work sort of looking at, you know, what constitutes an ACE, what should be counted, what should it be counted. And I don't think there's a, there's not some kind of, we definitely think these things get counted, these things don't, you know, there's, it, there's some debate out there about, you know, all the different things that can kind of contribute to trauma. Um, the original, the original ACEs study looked at 10 things and they were, you know, sexual abuse, sexual, physical, and emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, they sort of fell into those three categories, but people have looked at things like racism as a trauma and other sorts of experiences. I think the, the real gist is, you know, in order to quote count, although I don't really like to look at it as an on off uh-huh. <laughs> more of a spectrum. Right. Um, but I think 
it in order to really put you at risk for health problems, whatever it is that you're experiencing typically needs to be either sustained or very intense or both obviously is, you know, puts you at the highest risk. Um, but exactly, you know, all the things that sort of can do that are different and they're different person to person. What one person gets traumatized by isn't necessarily going to be the same thing. And the way people respond to things are different, which Mm -hmm. kind of, well, I'll just add, like, to me, it's irresponsible to talk about ACEs without also talking about resilience. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if somebody has a lot of, you know, grit and resilience and ability to cope, Mm -hmm. um, that you can't just look at their risk factor without sort of looking at their protective factors too. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking about like disease risk and risk for uh, risk for social, physical and psychological health issues. To me, it's about this gap. Uh So you have a low A score, but also really low resilience and still have a gap that puts you at risk. Is you could have a really high A score, but just, you know, awesome resilience, and maybe you aren't at risk. So to me, it's sort of this gap between what are your risk factors and what are your protective factors. That That's just the way it sort of lives in my head. Mm-hmm. So that's probably what, how, how we can best think about somebody's actual risk. Oh, so you've mentioned a lot about like ACE scores. I'll forgive my ignorance. I've heard that, but what's what's a score? Yeah, that's the adverse childhood experience. Right. So that's that original study. And tip again, there's been other forms developed since the original one, but the original one was a ten question form. Gotcha, gotcha. So, but there are different ways of evaluating that now. Right. It, it's also uh, good that you mentioned that trauma is different for different people as well some people may find this experience they might experience the same thing but some might find it traumatic more than the other and you're you're correct and also trying to look for um what do you call this their coping mechanisms as well uh, um and how they they deal with that trauma so um in in my practice in the psychiatric hospital i i don't see the patients because of their psychiatric conditions or mental issues, but because most of them have chronic pain. So how does, how does trauma affect uh, uh, pain and their perception of pain or how is it associated with their little chronic pain? So um, there's a lot of sort of overlapping neurophysiological changes associated with both chronic pain and chronic stress. So Mm -hmm. Basically, the trauma is activates the stress system, right? So the fight or flight. And if your flight system is being chronically activated, especially if it's being chronically and intensely activated over and over and over again, mm-hmm. leads to some neuroplastic changes. And, and I will make this like super simple because they're way complicated and way more complicated than what we understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't have a great understanding of it, but it heightens areas like the amygdala that are responsible for fight and flight and kind of that kind of emotionality. Mm-hmm. And it 
decreases the connections of areas like the hippocampus that are dealing with learning and memory and and things like that. So if you if you have had a lot of chronic stress and you already have these neuroplastic changes, no pain, mm-hmm. and you have a painful event, or maybe it's not even an event, maybe you just sort of develop arthritis eventually, so it's not even an event, mm-hmm. but because your brain has sort of heightened fight or flight, heightened emotionality, mm-hmm. perhaps you would be, you know, we always say that like fear and catastrophizing are associated with pain, mm-hmm. but who is fearful and who catastrophize? Well, maybe it's people who've had some bad stuff go down for them. You know what I mean? Right. Maybe it's somebody with a more connected, an amygdala that's more connected, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems that there's some neurophysiological basis for people who've had chronic stress being vulnerable from a neurophysiological perspective Mm -hmm. for in chronic pain because we see some of those same changes in chronic pain. Mm-hmm. So was it that that those changes already existed in that brain when the pain showed up and that's why it turned chronic? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or did the chronic pain cause those changes? Or in my experience, it's always a little of both, right? <laughs> it's like chicken and egg. Yeah. Which came first. Exactly. Because mm. pain pain's a big stressor, mm-hmm. right? you know, pain, if you have chronic pain, you are under chronic stress. So it's going Mm -hmm. to cause all of those things as well. So it is very muddled. Um, In addition to the neurophysiologic explanation, there's also probably an epigenetic um, explanation. So the way that you express your genes changes based on, you know, whatever you experience in life. And if you've experienced a lot of stress that may change your gene expression. And it's, we don't know a ton about this yet. I mean, I particularly don't know a ton about it, (laughs) Um, but if um, there may be some epigenetic changes that happen with chronic stress that predispose people to chronic pain. Gotcha. And you, it's nice. You also mentioned earlier that uh, with with, uh, increased stress today, we don't know if they're catastrophizing or there's like fear avoidance and yeah i was just looking at um those some studies about that uh, <laughs> because as i said I, i'm trying to learn more about uh the psychiatric physical therapy setting and practice and um because that reminded me of a lot of patients that i'm currently seeing that has like in their imaging, it would just show that they had um, osteoarthritic changes, degenerative disease, but their presentation is magnified. I was like, I, I, I was trying hard to explain it to them um, in a way that they would understand that it, I'm having a hard time understanding though that that big or that severe presentation with such uh i don't want to say normal but like usual um changes in 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 uh like uh radiographs or, or imaging and i sometimes i i think i was i try to consider are they catastrophizing are they malingering because with psychiatric um, um diagnosis i am not really sure how i would trust their uh subjective um reports but so 
with those types of like patients, how how are we going to approach that as physical therapists? Since we're not we're not psychologists, we're not trying to address that. But as physical therapists, what can we do in in trying to consider those things? So I think a couple things. Um, I think that um, so the pathology of pain, yes, is in part the arthritis that is causing a percentage of the pain that the patient has. But that other, that magnified part or the percentage part has a different pathology, which is central sensitization within the nervous system and probably epigenetic changes within the epigenome. I mean, I think we can say, yes, epigenetic changes within the genome. We just don't understand exactly what they are, but we happen um, with chronic pain. So I think that's really important to educate patients about and educate ourselves about. So if you say, well, you only have this much arthritis, therefore you should only have this much pain, Mm -hmm. well, you're ignoring the other piece of the pathology, Mm -hmm. um, which is whatever neuroplastic and epigenetic changes there are. Mm -hmm. And I think that also helps patients because if you're in tons and tons and tons of pain and people keep telling you nothing's wrong, right? Well, that makes you freaked out, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I if 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 I was in a huge amount of pain and everybody kept telling me that that they couldn't find anything, I'd be freaking out, right? So that's, that's true. Catastrophizing it's going to make me be fearful. Like I'm to say that, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you can provide them with some information about the neuroplastic and epigenetic changes, at least they kind of have a diagnosis and they can sort of think about what's going on and, and understand what they're feeling better. And that is calming, that reduces catastrophizing, reduces fear avoidance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I always tell my students, you can never, ever, ever, ever go wrong with the truth, but you can go terribly, terribly wrong with delivery. Um, and I think okay. this is this is one of those, you know, if you're trying to explain to patients the neuroplastic changes, you know, if you don't do that well, mm-hmm. and what they might hear is it's all in your head. And right. Like, it's in your brain, True. but that's not what I'm trying to say. So I think you do have to be careful in how you deliver the information. Mm-hmm. It is well delivered and your patient's really understanding what you're trying to say. I think that it it helps decrease. I should also say that I really hate the term catastrophizing mm-hmm. um, because I don't, you know, if somebody has pain mm-hmm. that is unexplained mm-hmm. and they've had a bad experience with healthcare, they don't feel like they're being heard. Mm-hmm. They have check, check, check. (laughs) Yeah. They have a background, you know, they have a mental health background or a drug use background, Mm -hmm. or they're not very well-spoken or educated. And they feel that, that they're being judged for those things. Mm -hmm. It is, makes a lot of logical sense to conclude that you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Like, you can figure out what's going on. Nobody's listening to me. Nobody really respects me. Like I feel, I'm in danger. I think that's a reasonable, that to me is not catastrophizing. That's a pretty reasonable assessment of the situation, right? Right, right. So I don't like the term catastrophizing very much because it 
sounds patient. It sounds like you're blaming the patient for being hysterical when I think the patient is just in a tough situation. Mm -hmm. I also don't care. Often when we talk about neuroplastic changes, people say maladaptive. Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't think it's maladaptive. I think it's adaptive to a mal situation. Uh, well, that's a good thing. <laughs> So I think if people have experienced a whole lot of stress and a whole lot of whatever, mm -hmm. you know, the brain's going to adapt mm -hmm. according to the experiences they have. That's not maladaptive. That's just somebody with a different set of experiences. And I think that we need to think about, I think it's really hurtful for us as providers to think about it in terms of maladaptation and catastrophizing. Like those are all terms that make it sound like something's wrong with the patient. Mm -hmm. the patient is just struggling with difficult circumstances. And I think what we have to acknowledge is that it's the, the circumstances are problematic, not the patient. Mm -hmm. Don't think that we do a good job of that typically in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, so that is, that is one really important piece of addressing this clinically. Mm -hmm. I think the other main goal clinically is really looking at building resilience because okay. the risk factors for chronic pain are often things, I mean, often there are things that we can do to redu reduce risk. But if you're talking about having an ACE score of eight out of 10, you know, that's all stuff that happened to you before the age of 18. Like, I'm not going back and changing your ACE score. I don't have the power to do that as a provider as much as I would absolutely love to. Um, and if you have epigenetic and neuroplastic changes, there is, a, you know, exercise and fitness and good therapeutic relationships and, th you know, getting good quality health care. All of that has the potential to change those things. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's a slow process. Um, so I think one of our key tools is really building resilience. And that's, I think, also where trauma-informed care comes in, where you're saying, well, what modifies, what modifies stress, what modifies trauma, what modifies pain? Mm -hmm. And if you think in like super clean terms about trauma, so let's say you're a kid and you experience something traumatic, right? If you experience something traumatic and you have... Um, you know, an adult figure that helps you sort through it, that can advise you, that's caring for you, you know, you're going to come out of that with, you're going to learn coping skills from that, right? Mm -hmm. A bad experience. And you may carry some neuroplastic and epigenetic changes as a result of that experience, but you've also resilience and you're carrying that with you. You know, if you take the same experience and the same kid, but give them no support, they have no one to talk to. They have no one to help them. You know, they're, it is less likely that they will have as good a result. That's less likely they'll be able to build the same resilience because they don't have any mentorship to build that resilience. And there's multiple things that there are multiple sort of internal and external factors that help people build resilience. And I think as PTs, you know, it's never too late to learn. You don't have mm -hmm. to be a kid, right? right? So as PTs, we can help our patients build the internal skill sets of resilience and we can be the external resilience. So I think, again, having a safe environment where people feel safe and feel like, like this is a place where I can get help, where I'm going to be well taken care of. I don't have to be like defending myself all the time or, you know, like 
like repeating myself, like I feel heard, you know, create environments like that. We can also create environments that just are sort of less triggering. I mean, one of the things about PT gyms that's really hard is they tend to be loud, crowded, and with lots of people. And, you know, that can be triggering, right? We also touch people that can be triggering. We ask people about their personal business. And if they don't understand why we're asking, that can be triggering. So there's there's lots of things that happen within a PT interaction Mm -hmm. and a PT facility that have the potential to be triggering. So I think we can do what we can to sort of make the environment nice, you know, like somebody calls up on the phone. Is it like, oh, hello, hold please. You know, or is it like, Hey, I'll get to you in just a minute. I need to put you on hold for a sec. Like, is it warm? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all those things make a difference. Um, and then in terms of internal things, so like gaining self-confidence, um, feeling like you have the tools that you need to deal with the situation that you or have in front of you. Um, those are kinds of things that we can help making good decisions, you know, so we work with pacing a lot, right? So I got up, I cleaned my entire house and then I was in bed for two days, you know, mm-hmm. so it means I can't clean my house instead of being like, well, maybe you could just clean one room, not be in bed the next day, clean the room the next, you know, mm-hmm. maybe space that out a little bit, like sort of helping people with, you know, what are your choices? What are your options? How do you choose the, you make those wise choices. So certain problem solving skills, those are all kind of internal skill sets that really help people with resilience. And I think it's really important for us to build those internal skill sets and be the external skill sets. Gotcha. And you mentioned, you mentioned earlier uh, that we have to learn about what triggers them what about what their strengths are or their coping mechanisms are and and make use of that in our um, treatment and how we deal with them but where do we learn all of this do we talk to them directly about it or do we ask the psychologist psychiatrist what they think their the patient's strengths are or what triggers they have um i think both potentially. I mean, I think it depends because that's always the answer, right? (laughs) Um, But I think, so I think, you know, some patients are talkers Mm -hmm. and tell you, you know, they'll tell you, you know, what triggers them. They'll tell you what makes them uncomfortable. And some people just aren't comfortable doing that. And I, it's certainly not our place to like, try to wrestle that out of somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, I th- so I think absolutely you can ask patients. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's helpful. I think it's fine to ask directly, mm-hmm. um, but I think that only works if you've created an environment where it's okay to share, you mm-hmm. know? So I think you have to say things like, you know, we're going to be doing, this is the kind of stuff we're going to be doing. Anything ever makes you uncomfortable. Let me know. I promise I won't be offended. You know, if we're doing something you don't like, tell me you don't like it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if I'm super, super think it's going to help you, we'll have a discussion. And if it's something that can go by the wayside, we'll just go by the wayside and we'll pick something else. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's nothing that you must do if it makes you uncomfortable we'll always work around that. Like just saying some like global things like that to patients helps. Mm -hmm. Then I think 
I think we can't just rely on our patients telling us. I think we kind of have to trust our observations Mm -hmm. and we have to be skilled Mm -hmm. in our observations. We have to be paying attention. Like, does someone look uncomfortable to you? Mm -hmm. Like they're getting mad. Do they look, they're withdrawing. Mm -hmm. Do they look just uneasy? Mm -hmm. When when your patient starts looking like that, it is time to pause and do something different. Like what the different thing is, is going to be different for each patient. But um, I am a fan of saying, you don't seem totally comfortable with this plan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, what can I, what can we, you know, what's going on in your head? Please Mm -hmm. share. Um, That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to invite patients to, you know, we need, we can't make good choices without a patient's input, right? I mean, we can't, patients are, they're the only ones that know what they're up to. They're only the only ones that know what it feels like. They're Mm -hmm. the only ones that know if it's helping, if you're Mm -hmm. treating helping. Um, So we have to ask them and, you know, patients don't, you know, they come to us and we're the experts and they just sit there and, you know, sometimes they just expect us to be telling them what to do, but they need also, they need to give us the information to make good decisions. We can't make good, you know, our decisions are based on evidence. Yes. Mm -hmm. Also based on patients' personal preferences and beliefs and, you know, circumstances and resources, et cetera, et cetera. And if we don't know what those are, well, how can our decisions or plans of care be good, right? So I think like really building that collaborative nature, and I say that to patients, I'm like, look, my job is to give you all the information about all the research and stuff, right? But like, I don't care how many letters you put at the end of my name, I don't know what it feels like inside of you, right? It doesn't matter how smart I am, I'm never going to know that, right? Mm -hmm. So have to give me that information I give you this information and that's how you end up with like the best plan and so that like saying things like that to patients kind of invites them to share but also maybe empowers them to kind of be a part of their decision making for their care. Mm -hmm. Gotcha that reminds me of, of when I started uh, in, in this position, I usually like just ask them first, is it okay to approach you? Is it okay to touch you when I'm assessing? Uh, does that mean, does that make you uncomfortable? So that, that's good. Uh, what you say that, that we make, we collaborate with them. They have to be empowered uh, in the, in the choices and the choices of treatment plan and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that also reminds me of um, what, I, some patients used to say that like when I was trying to educate them that I may not be able to help them like turn their pain to like zero totally and, and they would look at me serious and they would ask, they, they tell me that would should I be living with this pain my whole life? And and that really stops me. I, I At that point, I don't know what to tell them so, so I would just like try to uh, deflect that and, and come mm-hmm. back to them the next day and, and we'll just proceed to a, a different topic. But how, how do you say or educate your patients on the, on, 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 uh, in terms of pain that we may not be able to take away yeah. to a total zero over 10? 
So I definitely have an answer for that. But before I answer that, I do want to just go back to your previous question and say that, yes, also asking the mental health providers. Mm -hmm. to So in collaborating with your patient, but also absolutely collaborating with mental health providers who do not need to tell you like what this person's trauma is or why something is triggering, but they can say things, you know, there's some HIPAA issues, right? With mental health. But if you say, this is my general plan of care, this is how I'm approaching it. Do you have any recommendations for me to just make things more comfortable or easier for Mm -hmm. you to engage the patient? And that way they can say things like, you know, they might not do well in a crowded room or, you know, you might want to be careful about touching around this area or, or, you know, they might, um, they do better with um, like a slow, soft explanation and, and might not do well with the hee-hee-rah-rah approach, right, right. right? So they they can give you some pointers on what that patient might be responding to without having to disclose anything about their confidential conversations. So I think um, that's an important collaboration. Right. Answer your other question. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, with chronic pain, zero pain isn't super realistic. So there's a things that I say for patients. I mean, a couple things is just like a little bit of a reality and perspective check. Like unless you're 18, zero pain is not a thing. Like as you age, everybody who's a little older has pain. I mean, I still play soccer. I'm super active. Nobody would say that I'm limited by pain, but it's not like my knees don't hurt. My neck doesn't hurt. My back doesn't hurt. You know, I have pain. Uh It doesn't stop me or interrupt my life but I have it and I don't like it for sure. So I think, um, especially for people who are not young, like kind of just normalizing that zero pain is just, that's not a thing for middle-aged folks, you know, older folks. Um, so that's, that's never really the goal. Right. And a lot of young people that have, I mean, ask anyone who's played sports. It's not like they go through life with zero pain. It's not like they wake up the next day from a game and they're like, oh, I feel fine. You know, they're a little sore. So that's so having some pain is in no by no stretch of the imagination abnormal or like the gold standard we should all be aspiring to. So part of it is just kind of like providing some context on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other piece of it is sort of. Addressing, you know, being, and this is where I think being honest really comes in, you know, like if somebody has pretty bad arthritis and they have like degenerative disc disease and they have a whole bunch of other health issues and they have a whole bunch of other psych issues and they've got like a whole bunch of risk factors and they're just not the healthy, you know, they have health challenges, like zero pains, you know, they're going to have some pain. So I think arthritis goes one direction and it ain't the one we want it to go in. Right. Right, right. <laughs> like um, that doesn't mean that you can't decrease the pain experience, but you're not decreasing the amount of arthritis. Right. 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 Um, so I think, you know, sort of saying to people like, you know, if, if somebody has chronic health issues that contribute to pain, like being super honest about that, like you have chronic issues, these things are, you know, they can cause pain. That doesn't mean that we can't improve you know, your pain experience, but it probably means you're not going to have zero pain, that that's not a super realistic goal. Um, But, you know, if we get, you know, if we get it to the point that you can do most of what you want to do, 
even though there's some pain there, but that pain is not, you know, totally hijacking your life anymore. And you can do a good portion of the things that are important to you. Like that would be a good outcome. Wouldn't it be a perfect outcome, but that's something that's worth working towards. Um, So I kind of try to engage people in that, like, let's work towards that. Like, you know, never say never. If you get to a place of zero pain, great. I'm not going to stop you, obviously. But like, let's try working towards this place because at least that's a better place than where we are right now. And so, you know, less pain is less pain. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you can, and and more function is more function. So even, and I'll say to people sometimes, like, even if we didn't change your pain at all, if you could do, you know, and then I'll, say back to them, whatever they told me was important. So if they said, you know, like, I want to walk my dog and play with my kids and clean my house, I would say, you know, if I could get you to a point where you could walk the dog, clean the house and play with your kids, even if you had the same pain, Mm -hmm. wouldn't that be better? Or wouldn't that be worth investing in? And, you know, for the most part, everybody says yes to that. Um, So it sort of switches the focus from, decreasing pain intensity to improving function. So it's it really um, trying to focus people on pain interference as opposed to just pain. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll make use of that <laughs> next time, <laughs> next time I interact. Because my usual or, or canned response to that is usually um, I'm, I'm not here to uh, get your pain to a zero, but help you manage the pain so that when it doesn't get worse eventually if you're not moving or whatever like your knee or your your Mm -hmm. back or whatever so it doesn't get worse so that you can manage your own health with that and and sometimes they they do understand that i keep it just it just takes more or or more times to say that to for really for them to really grasp um the idea but i'm gonna make use of what you just said so not to like uh, what do you call this? Not put the focus on pain, but on on, on the experience and the interference to for them to be able to be more functional, uh, mm-hmm. even though there's some pain there. That's uh, good. So, um, uh, in in terms of assessment, we we don't really like go there and ask history of trauma, right? So, but how do we? Uh, apply that or integrate trauma-informed care to our treatment aside from um, those things that we mentioned earlier, like asking them if they're comfortable or not. But mm-hmm. so how, what are the other things that we can really like uh, put into practice uh, considering the approach of trauma-informed care? So I think having a warm and welcoming environment mm-hmm. and like, people that sweep the floor, people that answer the phone, security, mm-hmm. like everyone, not mm-hmm. just the PT you're working with. Mm-hmm. All like feel of the place. It also means like, are you coming in and everything's like metal and gray or <laughs> some nice art on the walls? Like is the environment welcoming, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, is the environment welcoming to a narrow span of people or is it welcoming to a wide span of people is also worth considering. Like, is your music like one kind of music all the time that caters to one kind of person and it never is, you know, things like that are worth considering. Um, 
Then I think the other piece, I mean, sometimes, sometimes in my mind, I feel like it just comes down to like good social skills, but um, my colleague says, no, 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 no. It's more than that. And it's really a skill set. But it comes down to, you know, being honest, Mm -hmm. BS anyone, pick up on it. And it sure doesn't um, establish a good relationship or trust. So you have to be honest. Um, You have to build a good rapport, a good therapeutic alliance with someone. And that can be, you know, for someone who has a lot of mental health challenges and for someone who is not good at building rapport, Mm -hmm. you as the professional, you know, you have to do the work for both people, right? So Mm -hmm. we're easy to build rapport with someone who has a good skill set in rapport building, right? right? It is harder to build rapport with someone who doesn't have a good skill set in rapport building, but that person that doesn't have that skill set shouldn't be penalized in the healthcare system because they don't have a good rapport, you know, because they have had life experiences that haven't set them up to have that skill set. And so I think we as professionals, to me, professionalism means mm-hmm. you demand that your patient has those skills. That's something we're capable of doing. So we should be capable of building a good rapport with pretty much anybody. And, and if we feel like we can't, you know, we need to reach out for help. Like, mm-hmm. is you know, if I can't build a good rapport with a patient, does that patient need to see someone else? Do I need to phone a friend, a mental health colleague and say, you know, I, I need to be counseled because I'm not being successful instead mm-hmm. of like, oh, that patient's a jerk, forget them. Uh-huh. That's not an appropriate response, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so that is all part of trauma-informed care because again, if you've had a lot of trauma and you've got a big connected amygdala and you've got big fight or flight going on, you know, you're going to potentially, this is of course not true of everyone, but maybe you're going to appear more anxious and nervous. Maybe you're going to, um, you know, be more short-tempered or whatever. You're not going to be your best self, especially when you're in pain and you're coming, right. You know, nobody's their best self when they're in pain in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, so understand not being so judgy about people and how they present and saying, all right, you know what, you, you are not presenting in a way that's pleasant to me, like Mm -hmm. managing our own emotions, right? So this person's yelling at me or this person's sort of withdrawn and not interacting with me, or this person is like fire hosing me with a, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right, right. or they're super anxious or whatever, or this patient's obnoxious or whatever we're thinking in there. It's, it's, I think we have to kind of manage, like, it's not about us. Mm -hmm. This is what professionalism is, is us saying, all right, this isn't about me. I can't sit here and get all offended that the patient's treating me this way. I need to, I don't know what's going on with this patient, right? Mm -hmm. This trauma-informed care piece. Like, I don't know what kind of day they had. I don't know what kind of life they've had. They don't know what they have on their plate and what kind of stressors they go on. I don't know what their previous experience with PT or previous experience with healthcare has been. Like, I know none of this, but give a little faith to your patients. Say, I'm pretty sure that there's an explanation for this behavior, that, that this person's been through something that, is, that has gotten them to this point. Like, they've arrived here somehow, and I don't need to be angry at this person because they've had some 
because they've had some potentially adverse things happen to them in life. Mm-hmm. Right? And I also don't need to take it. Per- I don't need to be offended or insulted mm-hmm. as my patient doesn't have good interpersonal skills. Right. So if my patient doesn't have good interpersonal skills, I'm not going to take that personally. I'm going to say, wow, it's time for me to step up with my interpersonal skills. Like that's how you address that situation. And I, I think that's kind of the crux of trauma informed care. <laughs> yeah. That's a very, very useful tips. I, I, it reminds me of a lot of interactions I have with patients and trying to just like consider them. You remind when you mentioned like obnoxious patients, patients were like blabbering or just talking a lot of things and you're right. Just we, we as professionals should just step back try to uh think that this it's not about us it's 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 about them and how they interact with us with the environment and how they their their past experiences affected how they are now that's nice that's that's big so it it does really take a lot of introspection in our part uh in in handling patients so it does i I like to say like, be genuine, uh-huh. be honest, like be you being professional doesn't mean you're uptight and lack a sense of humor, right? Mm-hmm. Professional means when you're having a bad day or you're triggered by something the patient does that that patient's still going to get good quality care from you. Like, that is what being a professional means. Mm-hmm. And it does really take a lot of skill. I mean, you have to really conscious, be conscious at first, because if you're not like used to that type of environment, you have like a knee-jerk reaction that I'll, I'll feel bad. I'll feel offended. I'll, I'll feel yeah. emotional. So it does really take you a while before you get used to it. It does. It's serious adulting. Uh-huh. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> like coming, coming from me, like coming from a, a geriatric population where I'm more of a, my, my approach is more upbeat because you want to like, uh, arouse them and, and, and keep them going. But in, in a mental health and psychiatric environment, you have to like try to tiptoe a little bit and see what they're, how, what things they would react better to. Is it like what you mentioned, like go all out or just go down slow. So (laughs) at first at, at evaluation, I'm just like, really tiptoeing with my questions, answers, and really explaining everything thoroughly so they, they don't get surprised of what I'm doing. So um, uh, what I'm having also a hard time with uh, the, this type of uh, population or setting is trying to apply a, a more like standardized um, assessments. So, um, because I'm trying, like, I, I try to use, like, uh, functional outcome measures, but some of the, the items don't really, like, fit in their setting. Like, for example, the, the hospital where they're, they're in. So are, are you familiar with any um, functional outcome measures that would apply to them, like, for psychiatric hospital or correctional facilities? Um, yeah, so I'll tell you my two favorite ones. They're both pretty global. Um, uh, so this, so, I mean, obviously there's psychiatric measures to use, but as far as I'm concerned, the mental health providers just select which one of those are most appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. So in terms of us, I do like the patient specific functional scale, which is just because the patient just chooses three activities that are important to them that they feel limited in and they rate them. So then you don't have to worry about like, 
Is it too high functioning, too low functioning? It's, it's completely salient because the patient is choosing the activities themselves. So I like that one a lot. And then I like the promise 29, which is um, it asks about um, it screens for, it has like just a couple of questions in each of these categories, but it looks at sleep, depression, anxiety, pain interference, pain intensity, social roles, physical function. I'm probably forgetting something, but it, it just does like a really broad cast a wide net. And so you can look at that and kind of say, it doesn't give you a ton of detail, but it's a wide net. So you can look at it and say like, Oh, these are some areas that I might want to look at in more detail. So it can kind of direct you to other um, outcome measures based on sort of what, what lights up on the promise. Cause it, it's a nice wide net to catch. And so I, I do like using that a lot. Um, if you're in a psych facility where people already, you know, where you already have a lot of mental health information that might, as it asks about anxiety and depression, which might not be super useful if you already have more detailed information about that on the patient's chart, but, um, there are other, so that's the promise 29, which is the one I use, but there's a lot of different promise, um, outcome measures you can use and, they are kind of, I'm not as familiar with the other ones, but there are definitely other ones out there that look at different constructs. So I find those helpful. I also think that it is, I think um, if you're good at collecting subjective information from your patient, you can really track progress that way. So are, you know, if your patient's coming in originally and they're saying like every single time, I'll stick with the cleaning house example, every time I clean my house, I get this big giant flare up and I can't do it and, da, 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 and I, I let it go and I let it go. And then it's just so dirty. I can't stand it anymore. And then I clean the whole thing, you know, what they're saying. And you're documenting that mm-hmm. when they come in, then, you know, after you teach them pacing and you do all this stuff and you talk to them about activity modification and panics and blah, blah, blah. Then when they come in, if they say, you know, my, the house was dirty. It was bothering me, but I cleaned up just this one room. And then I noticed my back started to hurt. So I, I stopped and then I rested and then I came back to it. So if you're documenting, you can show, right? Well, this person wasn't pacing. They weren't using good body mechanics. They didn't know how to, when to rest or how to pause. And now look at all these nice, wise decisions they're making. Like that proves that my education worked, right? that documents behavior change and it documents that edu- you know if education we we don't educate generally speaking this is always true but generally speaking in healthcare when we educate people our uh, the result we're looking for is some kind of behavior change mm-hmm. people to do something different because they have this piece of information mm-hmm. so if education's successful you'll get behavior change and if you're taking good subjective histories you should be able to track that behavior change over time if you're asking about those key activities in enough detail. Right. Good. Nice. That, <laughs> that, yeah, again, that reminds me of a lot of patients that I, I, I'm seeing telling me that uh, I've, I've walked this much today and the other day I walked farther and I was like, oh, that's good. So I, I should be documenting that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. It's all right. It's, 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 good when you say like the what we expect with patient education is behavior changes because before when i was like in, in school 
you would just put patient education like little importance like you don't expect anything from that but it, it's good what you said patient when you when you your your outcome for patient education is their behavior change Right. Good. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a good one. So um, we've been talking for a lot, <laughs> and thank you again for for uh, answering my questions and and what do you call this and, and clearing up some things and and sharing your insights about trauma informed care and sharing with me some of the standardized tools that you've been using. So um, I just have my last three bites for the okay. show. I usually ask. <clears throat> Um, last questions. Uh, it may not be related to the, our topic, but it's 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 about um, since the podcast is a, is a meal. Uh, what do you call it? it? It's a complete meal of insights and information. So my first question is: If your life is a dish, what type of dish would it be, and why? <laughs> Ooh, I'm a total food person, so that's wow. gonna be really hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It'd have to be like some kind of combo platter. <laughs> <laughs> Everything in it, huh? <laughs> like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Like, Great. Any specific platter like surf or turf or like meat, all meat? veggie platter it's gotta have a little bit of everything Everything. i need a little bit of everything yeah (laughs) all right it's gonna be well balanced well balanced (laughs) so you have your protein you have your carbohydrates and and Mm -hmm. and your uh what do you call this your fats there and i feel like i probably need food from all over the world too (laughs) nice nice (laughs) so my second question is what's your recipe for success um, in life or at work? In life, in, in professional or, or your career? Um, I think, you know, do a really good job at being you. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, um, you know, I, everybody always says fake it till you make it. And mm-hmm. I, not to say that that doesn't work sometimes, but to me, it's just like figure out what your strengths are and really put them out there for the world. Like if you're going to, you know, not to say that you don't work on your weaknesses and stuff like that, but your strengths, that's where you're going to do the most good. So like figure out where they are helpful, where they're needed and there. All right. Great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I do agree. Like if, if you're good at something, um, try to make that better improve that if you're you're you acknowledge your weakness at least you're aware of it and just still focus on where you're strong Mm -hmm. and i will say that that and i would say add to that like that you're sharing your strengths equitably that you're not just lending your strengths to a narrow Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. i think that's important too Mm -hmm. make people know what you're good at as well yeah, I mean, put it out there. I think you have to share, you know, if mm-hmm. you have something that you're good at and you're passionate about, um, share it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like what you're doing, you're sharing with like, us. Yeah. <laughs> you're sharing Be with generous. Us. Right, right. right. <laughs> and it's also nice because, I mean, um, people, I, there's a lot of people who know the topic and, and sometimes it's hard to reach out to those people and, and you're here graciously uh, sharing with us what you know, what you're teaching your students and what you're practicing in, in, in your our career. So 
thank you again. <laughs> so my my last question is, um, what are the three ingredients that make up who you are? So it, it may be a, a a principle, a philosophy, a motto. So what are the three <laughs> things that make up Sarah? Uh, well, I always say that even though I'm an OCS, even though I'm a orthopedic clinical specialist, I always say I don't self-identify as an OCS. I have, but I don't self-identify as one. I self-identify as a generalist. So my tagline has always been like, I don't know everything there is to know about anything, but if you have more than one problem, I'm your gal. (laughs) As a PT, I feel like that's that I think, you know, be genuine, like bring yourself to the world, be genuine, be honest, and, you know, be kind and equitable. Mm-hmm. All right. Be generous. Yeah, you're uh, be genuine and honest and being kind and equitable. Good, good. Three things that make up Sarah. All right. Again, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, for, guesting in the podcast and sharing with us your practice in trauma-informed care and how we can apply that in our own practice and how we can be more mindful about our patients' experiences and how we can deal with that and help them through it all in their rehabilitation. So as a takeaway um, uh, for our audience, what what is that one thing that you want our audience to take away from our um, episode? Uh, (laughs) That's hard. I think, um, you know, just appreciate that everyone who walks into the door is, it's not just a person in a moment. It's a person with an entire history Mm -hmm. and whatever has happened in that history, that's what's brought in, brought the person to you as they are presenting and to really just accept that and do the best you can for that person, meet them where they are and get them heading towards where they want to be. I like that because it sums up everything that in our practice, it's not just for patients with mental health or psychiatric uh, diagnosis. It's just for everyone, every patient that we handle see them as who they are, consider that there's things that might have happened in the past that, that can affect their participation in our treatment. And it's, it's up to us to be that that bridge to that for them in their road to recovery and rehabilitation. Yeah. All right. So again, thank you very much for guessing in, in the podcast. And I, I hope that we can still have you here for some other episodes. Yeah, that'd be great. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Good to meet you. And there you have it. Another episode of PT Makers and Therapy Podcast. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for next.